Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm a member here at City Light, and I'm really excited to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you guys this morning. Um, last week, Tom was filling in for Matt, and this week I am, and I just want to tell Tom, I don't know if he's here at this service or next, but I just was extremely blessed by his message last week and challenged. I hope you were too, and hopefully this week you'll leave the same way. Um, but to that end, let's pray, and then we'll, get, we'll dive right in. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for um, the chance to gather with your people this morning and to share your word with them. And to that end, Lord, I pray that the words that you have given me this morning would be of you and that they would be to illuminate your scripture, not to add or detract from it, God. Um, anything that is, that is your words, I pray that they would go straight to our ears, minds, and hearts and, and uh, just bring change about in our lives and in our desires, God. And Lord, anything that's not of you, I pray that it would fall to the floor and, and be immediately forgotten. And just thank you for what you're going to do this morning and what you've already done. And we just uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we start and dive into the text, I want to do a little thought experiment. Um, I don't know if you may have heard this term before, but an earworm. Anybody ever heard of an earworm? Right, an earworm is not like some disease that they're working on a cure for at Temple. An earworm is a song that gets stuck in your head. Okay, it's a song that, like, you guys know these songs, like every Taylor Swift song. It's that song that you, you don't even necessarily have to like the song. You just hear it over and over and over. Um, there's a website called 22 Words, and they published a list of, you know these lists, like 36 top earworms or 36 whatever, all those different lists like that. And uh, I wanted to share some with you, and they, the way they shared it is they listed one line of the song. And I want to challenge you to see if you can't help but sing the song in your, in your head, please. Worship, musical worship is over for right now. Um, and see if you get these songs in your head and if they stick. So the first one, if I just said the line, what is love, baby, don't hurt me. Right, you guys are singing it in your head, you can't help it. That's the Hathaway song uh, made famous by Night at the Roxbury. Or how about if I yelled, I'm not going to yell it, but if I did yell, shot through the heart. Right, a little Bon Jovi, or um, you're too late. Or if I said, is this the real life, or is it just a fantasy? Right, and some of you are caught in a landslide right now. Or if I said, never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Right? Some of you just, you just got rickrolled in church, guys. <laughs> and finally, and fittingly, if I, I can do this one in three words. If I just said, in West Philadelphia. <laughs> that one might be like the most notorious earworm of all time. You, you say that anywhere in the country and immediately people will yell born and raised back at you. Um, so why did I do that other than that it was fun? Uh, is because when I said those lines, you immediately heard that song in your head, I'm willing to bet. Music and all, right? At least that's what happened to me as I was reading over this list. But something interesting happens when you say the next song. The first one is completely out of your mind, and you have this new one stuck in your head. It replaced the old one, right? Most of you are not still singing the first song. You might be like, I don't even know what song you said first. Because right now you're thinking about chilling out, maxing, and relaxing all cool, right? That's what you're thinking about. Okay. That's because, and now I probably do my sermon because you're going to be singing in your head the whole time, and that's what you're going to walk away with. Hopefully not. <laughs> that's because we can't shut off our thoughts. They don't just go away on their own. If you've ever tried to not think of anything, it's pretty impossible. It lasts for maybe a second. We've all been there at night when we're trying to go to bed, and we're just like, brain, turn off. 
That doesn't happen. Science knows this. In fact, there's major branches of psychology built on replacing thoughts, replacing negative thoughts. This works, too, because it's a biblical principle that Paul's going to show us today in this text. However, I would argue that it stops short if all we're doing is avoiding bad thoughts to replace them with some arbitrary good ones. So our big idea today is that to experience peace, we need to focus on the good. And the first way that we do that is we're going to think on good things or think on the good. The first way that we're going to focus on the good in our lives as Christians is we're going to think about good things. Sounds easy enough, right? Paul knows that the Philippian people can't turn their brains off, and they'll always be thinking about something, so he tells them to make the conscious effort, the conscious choice to think about good things, to take in good content, and to fill our thoughts with those good things. And he gives them some examples of how to do this. In this verse, we see one of the dreaded lists in Scripture, right? I think as Christians, we run from lists because they've been abused and misused. At least I do. Because we see them sometimes, or we've heard them used as a heavenly-inspired checklist that we need to make sure we're getting all of these checks before we go to bed each night. Or some strict set of rules to strictly define the parameters of our behavior. Or maybe, this is more my, what I do, I see them as a, a shopping list, a suggestion that I can skim over, and if I get like a 70, then I'm passing, and I can pick which ones I care about and which ones, that one's a little hard. Like those tests when you're in high school where they're like pick two of the three essays, right? That's kind of how I feel. Um, but maybe, or maybe you're just sick of to-do lists because you get them all day long, and so you ignore them when they're in Scripture. But I want us to see lists a little differently, especially in the context of the epistles that Paul writes. See, he likes to use lists a lot, but he doesn't use them in any of those ways that we've listed above. Paul uses lists to expand on a point, to make an example. Um, it would be like if I said, have you ever been to a zoo? What kind of things are at the zoo? It's not meant to be an exhaustive, exhaustive list of all the animals at the zoo. It's just to give you a taste of what I mean when I say there are a lot of animals at the zoo. I don't mean kittens and dogs, right? I mean lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. Okay, in fact, most of the lists that Paul makes end with some kind of statement that tell us that it's not an exhaustive list. In this verse, he says, if anything, is worth, if anything is worthy of praise, think on these things. It's almost as if to say, and anything else like this. It's not an exhaustive list, but it definitely is an inclusive list. The examples that Paul gives are real tangible things that we can put into practice, um, but there are other things as well. He's not telling people what not to do here. He's not setting limits on what we should do. He's just telling us how we can engage our world and some examples of how to be faithful followers of Christ. Because he's, he knows that the natural drift of your heart, my heart, is not toward holiness and godliness. Right? If left to our own devices, we naturally drift away from those things. So we have to practice. He says that here. And he doesn't list these things by, excellence, or by accident, so we're going to look at what it might mean to be true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent. It's interesting to me that the first thing on Paul's list is truth, or think on what is true. I know for me, my anxieties are about lies that I'm believing, and I would be willing to bet that most of us fall into that. The natural inclination of our heart is to focus on the untrue things around us. 
I'll give you one example from my life. Um, it might be at work. I assume that those coworkers of mine that are close to me are not assuming the best about me. I think they're out to get me or that they are just waiting for me to slip up. So therefore, when I go home at night, I'm worried and I replay the conversation or in the car, I'm replaying those conversations and say, oh, I should have said it this way. They're going to think I meant X when I really meant Y. We've been there, right? But the truth in that situation is in my life, my coworkers are great people. I love my coworkers. Some of them go to church here. And if I focused on the truth that they love me and they're not quick to be angry with me and they are assuming the best about me, I'm not going to believe this lie. I'm focusing on the truth. Next, Paul talks about being honorable and just. Pastor Mike at Center City this morning is going to be telling uh, his congregation that just means when things in the world are exactly the way they're meant to be. You can think of it also as fairness, but it's a little bit stronger than that. We all could think of right now 1,000 things that are unjust. Probably within the first five minutes of turning on Fox News or CNN or your news of choice, you're going to see 1,000 things that are not just in this world, and it's easy to think about them. But here Paul is telling us to think about the things that are just. The honest repairman that comes to your house and leaves you a bill for only $100 when you were expecting to pay 1000 and when you know nothing about the plumbing or the electrical work, and he could have wrote that bill up and fixed things that didn't really need to be fixed. That's just and fair. Or on a bigger scale, what about adoption? An orphan child now has parents. That's the way the world is supposed to be. That's the way God intended. These things are just, and we should think about them. Next, Paul talks about whatever's pure. When something's pure, it means it's undefiled. It's when someone sacrificially loves someone without any expectation for a return. That's an example of thinking about something pure. Or when last night I had the pleasure of my... Let me rephrase that. I was going to say I had the pleasure of my wife going out of town. It sounded funny. I had the pleasure of getting to spend the whole weekend with my daughter by myself. That's a better way to word that. I missed my wife, to be clear. You hear that? If it's on the recording, I missed you. Um, well, last night we watched Finding Dory as we went to bed, and right before we went to sleep, she like rolled over and gave me a hug and kissed me on the cheek. And that was incredible to me. That was a pure love. She was not at that moment trying to get an extra scoop of ice cream or go to the park or put her ballerina dress back on. She was just truly telling me that she loved me. It was pure. Next, we see Paul shift to lovely. Think about lovely things. Lovely things are those things that are beautiful and they bring us joy. A sunset, a car ride on a day like today with the windows down, unless you have allergies. And for me, a run along Forbidden Drive is lovely. That's something that brings me joy and peace. I love running through the woods on a nice day like today. Or a good conversation with old friends or a Memorial Day cookout last weekend. Those are things that bring joy. Think about them. Something interesting here is that as Christians, I think sometimes um, we think that we shouldn't be enjoying these earthly things. We think that, oh, we're above great cheesesteaks or good music. We can't really find joy in a cheesesteak when we have Jesus. But Paul seems to be contradicting that idea here a little bit. He says, think often about beautiful things, not forget about them. There are differences between the way an unbeliever and a believer enjoy things and enjoy pleasure, one key difference is that our joy doesn't terminate on our creation. Our joy should be a fuller joy, right? The sunset is beautiful, 
But our joy doesn't end there. It flows up even further to the creation or the creator that made it. See, God gave us eyes to see. He made light a spectrum that could be broken up by the clouds or whatever. One science guy's in here going to be like, that's not how it works. But whatever. God knows how it works. And he made it work that way so that we could see these beautiful colors in the sky as the sun sets. Or cheesesteaks. Guys, these were God's idea first, right? He made cows, and he made them delicious, right? <laughs> he made cows delicious, and then he made cheese from the same cow, or cheese-like product, if we're being honest. And he gave someone, a chef somewhere, the idea to make this amazing sandwich. And then, he didn't stop there, he gave us taste buds so we could enjoy a cheesesteak. Have you ever thought about that? God could have chosen to refill our energy any way he wanted. Like, it could just be like pellets that we like inserted into a tank. I don't know. I think about things too much, right? <laughs> but he chose to give us food and taste buds so that we could enjoy the, the act of eating, right? Our joy doesn't end on the cheesesteak, but we, give, we take joy in our creator. We can appreciate from where the cheesesteak comes, right? Next up on the list from Paul is excellence. Believers should focus on things that are excellent. We can appreciate things done well. The Bible says we should appreciate things done well. When someone does their job excellently, it's to be admired. You can appreciate a well-written book. You can like a great actor in a movie, and you can love talented artists. I especially like when craftsmen ply their trade excellently, when they are fixing my car or my house, right? I want them to do a great job. So these are the things that Paul tells us to think about. We should think on these things. Part of thinking, though, is controlling what we intake, right? We think about the things we experience. When you're laying in bed at night, you're thinking about your day often. If we want to think on good things, we need to take in good things and filter out bad things. So how do we do that? As a little aside here, I just want to give you a helpful filter in how to see what do I allow in and what do I not. And that is this paradigm of receive it, reject it, or redeem it. These are the three options you have. I'm sure there's a fourth out there somewhere, but these are the three big options we have when it comes to dealing with things from culture or from the world and seeing how we respond to them. What this means is that if we receive something, some things are inherently good, right? Adoption is inherently a good thing, and we should celebrate it when we see it. Okay, there are governmental agencies that provide adoptions. That's good. We should celebrate that. We don't need to make a Christianized version of that, but we do have those, and those are also very good things we should celebrate. Okay, or physical fitness is a good thing. The Bible tells us that it's good to be, in, to be healthy, and we should take care of our bodies. Okay, we don't need to make Christian Zumba or Christian gyms. We can just accept that the way it is. We can receive it. We can go to the gym. Okay, or taking care of, our, of God's creation. Okay, sustainable practices in, in agriculture, good things. They're already God-honoring and good. Then there are other things. The flip of that is that we have to reject at face value. They are clearly opposed to biblical principles and the gospel of Jesus. Strip clubs, right? There's not something that we can change to make it a Christian strip club. Okay, we need to reject that straight out. We should realize that they're harmful, and we should push to end them and to restore the people involved in that sin. We have to reject the idea of a strip club. Another example, a touchy issue, um, is abortion. And like I said, I know this is very touchy, 
And some of us might have really strong feelings about it in here. And some of you in here may have even been affected or involved with this decision with abortion. And I'm not here, I want to, please hear me, I'm not here to condemn you today. There's forgiveness and grace in Jesus if this is something that you've been involved with. But I do think that we need to say that even if our culture accepts it and celebrates it, we have to reject abortion as followers of Christ. And then we have things in between. They're neutral. They may have been misused, but on face value, they're neutral things. Art is one of those types of things I think about. You see, we're made in the image of God. And part of that is that we're creative. God is a creator, and so are we. Some of us more than others, but even those of us who are not creative of our, in ourselves, don't have that natural inclination to make things, we can appreciate when somebody else is creative, and we enjoy their creativity. Music, movies, visual art, good craftsmanship. This list suggests that Christians should enjoy these things, and can. Some of them can be received, and we can appreciate like a touching movie that shows a great example of justice. We can appreciate that movie at face value, but what about something like mm, hip-hop? Hip-hop is my favorite genre of music. I love it. But it has been, and still is, largely in part associated with very, very worldly desires and non-God-honoring things. But see, it's being redeemed right now as we speak by a group of men and women, lots of them, around the world, to be a vehicle for the gospel instead of a vehicle for ungodliness. Okay, we don't need to reject hip-hop at face value. We can redeem it. There's nothing inherently evil about it. It's the message that we need to reject. And I think the receive, reject, redeem framework can be helpful when you're filtering your thoughts about the media you're taking in. Another way that we focus on good, so we, we think on the good, and we got to move, though, from thinking to actually practicing the good. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. These things, he's telling them, are the things that they're thinking about that are good, right? Around here, we use the head, heart, hands paradigm often. He's saying, I'm glad you're thinking about these, your head, and I'm glad the desires of your heart are changing, your heart, but now I want to see you work this out using your hands. You need to practice loveliness and justice and all of this lists of these things. Let's just pick one to practice and kind of go through how our day would be different if we practiced. And I want to point out he uses practice, not just do. Right? Practice would involve some work. Right? And it also involves the idea that we're not going to do it perfectly to start. We're going to get better at it and grow in it. Let's pick excellence. I know in my life there are plenty of times where excellence is not my priority. I'm not thinking about doing an excellent job most of the time. And then I'm certainly not practicing it. An example, when I get home from work, or let's use I'm home alone this weekend with my daughter, and I know I need to clean up before my wife comes home. Right? We've been there. My thought is usually not something like, man, I want to make this the cleanest house I can to honor my wife. It should be that, but it's not. My thought is usually, how clean is clean enough so that she doesn't have to clean it when she gets home after I've already cleaned it, right? That's not excellence, guys. It's mediocrity. I need to remind myself and practice doing a great job even cleaning the living room. 
Or what about our jobs? Whether you have a career or you're a stay-at-home mom, which is certainly a job, or you're in school, think about how many times you forego excellence because it's easier to be mediocre. Okay, what about art? Again, I'm using that a lot here, but it's fitting. And I think there's a temptation in our day and age to slap the label Christian in front of something and then to sell it, even when the quality is less than excellent. We've heard some of those songs on the radio before, seen some of those wall hangings, right? Thankfully, there are men and women working to change this, and I think, you know, this is just my opinion, but I think some of the Christian music coming out today is the best it's ever been, in different genres. However, we're not really all the way there yet. If you're a Christian working a job or creating a product, it should be the highest caliber you possibly can, because you're, especially if you're attaching Christ's name to it. His name's not a sales tactic, right? It's you're representing him, so your work should be excellent. I think Christians definitely should not be a step behind when it comes to adding value to our culture. And this could be for any of these, for purity, love, uh, loveliness, excellence, justice. We shouldn't be the knockoff. Can I just say that, right? Like, we shouldn't be copying something else and doing a worse job than the world is. This verse makes it clear that we should be adding to the culture around us, having a positive influence, adding excellence to the culture, fighting for, just, or for justice when we see injustice, making lovely things and things to, be, to take joy in. What about purity? This is not just having a godly view of sex, although it's certainly not less than that, but it's more. Practicing purity means that as Christians, our speech is pure. Our motives are pure at work. Okay, so we've thought about the good, and now we've practiced the good, or we're going to practice the good. Finally, I think this uh, text here tells us that really we need to know the ultimate good. All of this thinking should culminate in us thinking on the ultimate good. That good is the God of peace, as Paul calls it. Christ has brought peace between God and man. That's true, we can think on that. He perfectly fulfilled the commands of God, and then he died the death that you and I deserve. He took our ugliness, our evil, our shame, our injustice, our sin on himself. He took the wrath of God so we could have peace with him. The culmination of this scripture is that all of our good in thoughts and action land on the God of peace. This means that what we are doing is so much more than just thought therapy or thought replacement therapy. We're not simply ignoring our suffering and our pain or looking on the bright side or cheering up and getting over it. You know, in many religions and worldviews, the goal is to just eliminate suffering or escape it, right, or to hide from it. That's not true of the follower of Christ, at least in this lifetime. We know that one day we will ultimately escape suffering. But in this lifetime, we're not just simply trying to ignore it. We're choosing to focus on something greater than our pain. Guys, we get God. We have God, the God of peace, the God of the universe. When I'm in the midst of the deepest possible suffering, I don't, I don't need to despair. I have the ultimate good. You know that list, pure, honorable, just, lovely, commendable, excellent, anything worthy of praise. I have all those things in Christ Jesus, and it's untouchable. There's nothing that can rock that thing, right? If I'm thinking about my daughter, something I, you know, God forbid can happen to my daughter if that's my good thought. You know, I'm thinking Peter Pan here, you know, think good thoughts. If my joy is in that my bank account is full and I'm secure, that can be rocked, but Christ won't be. 
right? He's the embodiment of truth. He is truth. There's no falsehood in him. Honor, he's perfectly honorable. He's the perfection of justice. In fact, his death satisfied God's justice. He's pure and he's without blemish. He's lovely and commendable. Jesus is excellent and he's absolutely worthy of all of our praise. He's the ultimate thing we can be thinking of even when there seems to be nothing else good. I know for me, I find myself thinking about this. A worry of mine is that I won't be able to provide for my family one day. Or what if my wife gets sick? You know, what ifs tend to rule my mind when it's idle. Remember we talked about that drift? My mind drift is to what ifs and worry. John MacArthur, who's a, a pastor, wrote a book called Anxious for Nothing, and he points out this lie to us and how it should culminate on the ultimate good. And I just want to put this on the screen and let us read this and take it in for a second. I'm going to read it slowly so you can think about it. He says, Christians who worry, so if you're a Christian that worries, probably all of us at some point or another, means we believe that God can redeem us, or he says redeem them, break the shackles of Satan, take them from hell to heaven, put them into his kingdom, and give them eternal life. But he thinks they, he, but they just don't think he can get them through the next couple days. I'm guilty of that all the time. And that's our thoughts. Now let's think about how knowing the ultimate good helps our practice. Remember, practice is an overflow of what is in our minds and hearts. What we focus on is what comes out. In the book of Luke, uh, chapter 6, it says this in verse 45. It says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And we have a good treasure in our heart, right? In Christ. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So this, at first, seems like good news, and it is, but there's also a problem here. You see, I know my heart. I know that I have a lot of evil treasure in there sometimes. This list of things to think about and to practice seems overwhelming to me. How can I do all of those things? I know my mind is tempted to not think about the good. It's tempted to think about the evil, which means that my actions will be evil according to this verse of Scripture. But the good news is the last sentence that Paul tells us in uh, Philippians 4.9. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Because we have the God of peace, we have freedom from our sin to be able to do the things that God has set before us. You know, just a few sentences earlier in the scripture that Tom read to us last week, Paul says that he talks about the peace of God. But I think intentionally here, he flips that to the God of peace. How much more powerful is it than passive peace that God could send to us that he sends himself? And according to this text, as we practice the good, we get more of him. So he enables us to practice the good, so then we get more of him, and then as we get more of him, we're more able to practice and think about the good. It's a beautiful cycle, right? God makes peace with us through Jesus, and then we freely are able to serve him. So today, in just a minute, we're going to get ready to pray, and the band's going to come up, but I want us to conclude with uh, um, just a, a word to you guys today. I don't want you to leave here with feeling like you had a mandate of good things that you have to try and do. I don't want you to leave with a do list or only a to-do list, especially if you don't know the ultimate good. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're in here and you're like, I don't, there's nothing good. 
then those good things that you can think about or do are worthless. Paul tells us elsewhere in Scripture that our good deeds without Christ are no better than filthy rags. To think about or to do good, you must first allow Jesus to give you a new heart and a new mind. So my urging for you today is not to leave with a list of things to do, but I want you to think about how you can turn from your sin and let Jesus take that on him. He's the ultimate good. He died for your sin, your shame, your ugliness to give you beauty, purity, excellence. So we're going to respond with communion during these next three songs. And if you're a follower of Christ, that's a time for you to um, remember what Christ did on your behalf. You can remember justice and think on that, that God paid the price for you. It's also lovely you can think on that. But if you're not a follower of Christ, I'd ask you to, that wouldn't be your next step to go up there because it's just bread and wine if that's your, your, the case for you. I would encourage you, there's a sign, two signs in the back for prayer. Go talk to somebody today. Seek after Jesus. Seek after him. Let him replace your heart and those old desires with new desires and take that evil treasure and give you a good treasure. And so I just ask that you remember that and we're going to pray together as the band comes up. Heavenly Father God, I thank you that you are the God of peace and you're here with us. You didn't send your peace, but you came. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us good and lovely and beautiful things. Even to those of us who don't call you Lord, you've given us sunsets and beautiful weather and families and God, so many things we don't deserve. And I pray that as we worship and we sing true statements about you and true things, um, about your loveliness, that we would really focus in on those today, God. And that we would lose sight of our, our problems and our, our pain, not because they're not real, they're very real, but because you're so much better. And that we would remember that today and just pray that you would change hearts, change my heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.